Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 30th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, October 27th, and we have our friend Truthfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 58 of this series of podcasts. We have recently discussed several of these 100 proofs which were related to the facts that the children of Israel would be scattered and then regathered into their own land, which is found in Europe. And there they would receive reconciliation to Yahweh their God through Christ. These proofs were manifested in our interpretations of the opening of the little book in Revelation chapter 10, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, and the destiny and plight of the woman in the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12, where that same woman had later become a whore in Revelation chapter 17, a circumstance which describes the state of the world today. Now we shall move on to another related subject of prophecy, which explains why, even though they were given and they would fulfill such promises, they would nevertheless remain blind as they fulfilled them. This blindness would persist in spite of the teachings of the apostles. Truth vids, greetings, praise Yahweh, and thank you for being here. Greetings, Bill, praise Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, so here we're getting on to the uh, bl blindness of, you know, essentially a people that was prophesied, and uh, it would be a very long blindness, right? And um, e even though we've, as you said, fulfilled all the prophecies, were Christian, had great nations, obeyed his law, and built a, a godly uh, you know, continent and nations and spread out and all that, we were still completely blind. And uh, when you can contrast that to the Jews who allegedly always knew that they were the Israelites, yet never fulfilled the damn prophecy, yet still claimed that they are the Israelites, you should immediately be able to figure out, well, if if the Israelites were meant to be blind, then, then how can the Jews be Israelites, right? Because they've always allegedly known who they are. We're, we're, and they probably truly know who they really are, right? But they just lie about everything. And um, as for the the Nigs who um, claim that they're the Israelites, well, they didn't even have a Bible uh, a few centuries ago, or and again haven't fulfilled any prophecies. So how could they possibly be the Israelites? It's only us who are hopefully slowly awakening towards the end, right? The spirit of Elijah, the real gospel that will eventually prevail, uh, right, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely, and and we're going to see, to some extent, this evening, prophecies that people, that even the people of God would not even understand the scriptures, and that is true to this day. The Roman Catholics exploit perhaps two or three verses in the Old Testament, and and a handful of verses in the New Testament to try to lead us to believe that the children of Israel were somehow replaced by a church of believers. And that is absolutely not true. That defies much of the language of the prophets and the New Testament. However, they get away with it because people don't read the Bible for themselves. 
And when modern Christians do read the Bible, they generally only study the Psalms and the New Testament, and they leave the Law and the Prophets imagining that it's for the Jews. But if they'd actually read the Prophets and look at the familiar language, which the apostles had quoted over and over again in the New Testament, they would start to see that there is an intrinsic connection between these things, between these, these groups of writings that can't be broken because the apostles are explaining that these are the prophets that are being fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. So we have an obligation as Christians if we really want to be Berians and, and go back, as Paul had said, as Luke had written, and examine the scriptures to see if these things be so, to see what these promises are that the apostles had attested that Christ is fulfilling, we have to go back and look at these prophecies. You, you speak about Jews never fulfilling any of the prophecies. These scattered children of Israel, who are much more numerous than, than the, the 40,000 people that returned to Judea from whom descended in part the modern Jews or, or whom the, the modern Jews claim to be when they're really not. Well, well, these scattered Israelites were much more numerous according to the prophets and they bore all of these promises of reconciliation according to the prophets but in ancient times, you will not find Jews scattered throughout Europe or Asia or anywhere else. The Jews, the diaspora of the Jews, by their own admission, didn't happen until after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. That's where they count their diaspora or diaspora, if you will. So what about these people that were taken into captivity between 740 BC and 676 BC by the Assyrians, and then in, in between 600 and 585 BC by the Babylonians, that most of them never returned to Palestine. But yet they bear all of these promises. We are about to see once again a, a cross-section of them in Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, and other books of the prophets. So mainstream Christians, they disregard all these prophets, but it's through these prophets and only through these prophets that we can truly understand the ministry of Christ in the New Testament. And where um, Jerusalem was destroyed uh, and the second time under Hadrian, that, that's what really um, spread them out. And that's actually fulfilling the verses, um, Christ's vengeance, and that they would be a curse and keep the name of Judah, right? And they'd basically be a curse to every nation and wherever they went, they would essentially rot that nation. Right. The temple and the, and the city so, was destroyed. So what I'm saying is they do fulfill some prophecies, but not the ones uh, Christians believe, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, we are told in Jeremiah that the bad figs would be driven into every nation to be a taunt and a reproach and a curse. So when Christ had repeated that, when Christ had said to the apostles, as it's recorded, I believe in perhaps Matthew 20, chapter 24, Luke chapter 20 or 21, one of those chapters, when he said that 
there wouldn't be one stone left upon another warning of the destruction, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which was also prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. So Christ wasn't saying anything that wasn't already prophesied in the Old Testament. He was only repeating, clarifying, and elaborating on some of those prophecies in the Old Testament. And and I'm talking about Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, and Matthew chapter 24. He was clarifying those prophecies in the Old Testament. He was telling his disciples that these things were imminent. He was giving them the warning signs of when these things would happen. And if you look at the history of the subsequent period, which was recorded very well by Flavius Josephus, you would see that from 65 to 70 AD, these things happened exactly like Christ had said that they would happen when he gave the apostles this information in 32 AD. So it's the providence of God and, and the foresight, the prescience of God is, of course, indisputable. And the fact that Christ had that prescience. But it's a process like everything else is a process. It, it was 70 AD is the marker we use because that was the year of the destruction of the temple. However, the Edomite Jews, the, the Judeans, if you will, because not all of them were Edomites, but the preponderance of them certainly were, the Edomite Judeans had carried out revolutions against Rome for another 60 years or so after 70 AD. There was the Bar Kokhba rebellion. There was the Kedos War, in, in which many Romans were slaughtered in the Kedos War. And that was, I believe the Kedos War was in the time of Hadrian. That was yeah, the, yeah, and the, they, the They killed end. one legion, so he came back with six and killed half a million of them. Yes, the the Kedos War was the the real marker in that period of history whereby the Jews would become absolutely despised by the Romans and and taken into slavery in, in very large numbers. Unfortunately, they took them into slavery, in many of them into Italy, into southern Italy, where they would later be freed and become Romans within a few centuries. So it it didn't help Rome to do that, but that's what happened. Okay. Before we begin, it must be explained that there are two blindnesses prophesied in Scripture. The first and more commonly discussed is the blindness of the inhabitants of Jerusalem found in Isaiah chapter 6. There we read in part where Yahweh is instructing Isaiah by the way of a seraphim, And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And 
Yahweh have removed, has removed men far away, and there'd be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now, this happened that this prophecy, I should say, because I don't want to confuse it, this prophecy was given upon the death of Uzziah, the king of Judah, sometime around 742 B.C., now, some sources estimate his death to be as late as 739 B.C. In the first five chapters of his book, Isaiah had been prophesying specifically against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And since he noted the death of Uzziah, king of Judah, here at the beginning of chapter 6, the people of Jerusalem must also have been the subject of this prophecy since the context has not been broken since he mentioned them once again explicitly at the beginning of chapter 5. So, by the time of the end of Uzziah's rule, the Assyrians were already beginning to take into captivity at least some of the children of Israel of the ten tribes but they had not yet reached Judah. It would be nearly 40 years to the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians under Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, and the captivity of much of Judah. But Jerusalem itself would not be destroyed until about 586 BC. At the end of Isaiah chapter 6, there is a promise that some of Judah would return, where we read in the King James Version, and this is awfully obscure language that I will attempt to clarify, but yet in it shall be a tenth, meaning the land of Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And that word substance may also be translated as monument, and, and there's other possibilities there. This translation is obscure, and in this context, I would translate it to read, yet a tent will return to be kindled like a terebinth and like an oak, because by its felling is a monument. The holy seed is a monument. So we, had, we see that Isaiah had prophesied that Judah and Jerusalem would become desolate and uninhabited, but that a tenth of those taken into captivity would ultimately return and become a monument or a memorial or other possible translations. So around 521 BC, approximately 42,000 people of Judah, men of Judah, did return with Zerubbabel and a few thousand more in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra after him to rebuild the city and the temple. While the words concerning blindness were fulfilled so that the city would become desolate, they were also fulfilled again so that it could become a, mon a monument, and that happened when it was destroyed by the Romans following the Passion of Christ. So this passage has a dual fulfillment. So in John chapter 12, the Apostle John cited those same words from Isaiah chapter 6 in relation to the people of Jerusalem in his own time. And he mentioned Isaiah's vision in that chapter where he wrote, 
speaking of Christ, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah, which in Greek is spelled as Esaias, said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. This th- these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And that is so, described in the opening verses when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and spoke of him. That's described in the opening verses of that chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. So even though the Jews witnessed the miracles, they still rejected him, right? That's what it's essentially saying, that, that they're blind, that they don't care. They they only cared about their um, control and power and their money over the people, right? Well, absolutely right. But this isn't talking really about the Edomites. This is only talking about the Israelite Judeans. It doesn't matter what the Edomites do. The Edomites are going to be a tool. All of their evil, wicked machinations are going to be a tool in the hand of God anyway to to perform his word. So it is fair to interpret that Isaiah 6.13 explained that the remnant which returned to Jerusalem, which was perhaps a tenth of the original inhabitants, inhabitants taken into captivity, would grow like a tree and then be kindled or tried, and they would fall. But with their fall in the Holy Seed, there would be a monument or a memorial. This is precisely what had happened in Judea with Yahshua Christ and the eventual destruction of the city, as Christ himself is that monument. But to facilitate this, Yahweh had blinded their eyes so that his word could be fulfilled. So even those who did believe Christ didn't act in his defense. As John went on to explain in that same place, that nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So they believed, but they were also blinded in that manner. And I think the same things going on today, right? The Jews centrally have control, and many people who do, you know, Christian beliefs or anything like that are forced to speak silent, right? And speak out. Absolutely. Right, we're there. Absolutely. There's a, a lot of white Christians in America and still in Europe and, and Britain and Canada and Australia that know that the things that the government is doing, such as mandatory vaccinations and things like that, are actually contrary to the word of God, but they stay silent because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They love their jobs, their vocations, their communities, their their relations with with their government and their churches. They love those things more than they love the praise of God. They would have the praise of God if they would keep his word. 
but they're going along to get along. So we see the same thing today, and they're just as blind today. But that's also for for a good purpose, and we're going to talk about blindness in, in our 69th proof here. This is the blindness of Israel. The blindness of the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem was so that the word of God could be fulfilled, as he had to die at the hands of his enemies so that he could redeem his people. Yet his people would also be blind, but with a different sort of blindness. They would become blind as to who they were and forget their past as Israel. That is the purpose of our discussion discussion here this evening. I don't know if you have anything to add before I begin that. Yeah, and it's it's only recently that we've started to wake up, right? Um, I, I know you've mentioned it many times that the hunters would eventually come and start digging up, um, you know, all, all the um, ancient monuments in Assyria and all that and gradually piece it together. And um, where we are now is basically a Christian identity that's been built on and built on by our predecessors who have put the pieces together and then went a little further and then you know maybe some errors have been introduced and we go back and correct them but that's how we got to this bit to where we are now right it's been a is it two or three centuries that we've gradually got to here so it's fairly recent in the grand scheme of things right over 2000 or 2700 years that we've finally started to reawaken right absolutely with and and christian identity it, it's I'm I'm going to explain this. You're you're going to send me off on another digression, but that's okay. It's necessary. This is another state of modern Christianity in how disconnected they are from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter sixteen, there's a prophecy where we read, "Therefore, behold, the days come," saith Yahweh, "that it shall no more be said." Yahweh liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But Yahweh liveth, that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, which again is another proof, even though we don't have it in our list. It, it's not yet. Maybe we should. It's another proof that the children of Israel were in the north from where Jeremiah was, which was Palestine. And from all the lands where he had driven them, and we see those lands are in the north, well, that's where the Assyrians brought the Israelites into captivity, in the north. And then he drove them into all these other lands. And this is a promise of reconciliation to them. And he says, I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. Now, when Christ met his apostles, they were actually, some of them at least, and, and this is John and James and Peter and Andrew and a few others were literally fishermen in, on the Sea of Galilee. That's how they made their living. And he told them that he would make them fishers of men. So in the selection of the apostles, we see the first portion of this prophecy in Jeremiah 16, verse 16, fulfilled. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. So where would they go to fish them? They would go to fish them in the north, just as Jeremiah said here in verses 14 and 15. 
And after, and this is the part that all the denominational churches miss, the denominational mainstream Christian churches, they're still sending fishers. They think they're still sending fishers. They're lost. They don't read this and, and imagine how it might apply in the real world today if they were legitimate churches. They're not legitimate churches. They've disconnected the, the word of God from, from the gospel of Christ when Christ connected it over and over again. So that they're only teaching half the gospel. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Why would you have to hunt Israelites out of the holes of the rocks? Because you have to find in archaeology who they were and where they went. And that's what we do in Christian identity. We are... And, and this started over 150 years ago, 180 years ago, with British Israel, who began hunting the children of Israel out of the rocks. When these archaeologists, these British, French, German archaeologists, went into Palestine, Iran, Iraq, and started digging in the ground, they discovered these Assyrian records and many other monuments that proved that the Scythian Germanic tribes to the north were the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivity. They dug them out of the holes of the rocks. And, and modern Christian identity has taken up that ministry of the hunters. And, and do you think before that, I, I don't know if it's true, but they say like Queen Elizabeth and um, after that King James, that there was some sort of British Israel around there. But do you think that was more they just believed that the Christian people, the believers, were, um, you know, essentially the Israelites, those who believed, and, and that's what they meant by that. Well, well, if you're a believer in the scripture, if you're a believer in the gospel, the rule of thumb for what the faith is that you should believe should be found not only in the words of Christ, but in how those words were explained by his apostles. And, and these, this can indeed be found in the words of Christ, but also in the books of the prophets. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where are those sheep? Identify those sheep. And Paul explains where they are in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul actually explains that some of that language has been obscured by church translations and translations that agree with church doctrine that deny that aspect of Scripture, but it can't be denied. Paul of Tarsus very clearly said in Romans chapter 4, even in the King James Version, that the faith is basically what Abraham believed, not what you might believe. The faith is the, based on the promises to the fathers, as it says also in Luke chapter 1, that it's what Abraham believed. And Abraham believed, and Abraham was credited for the belief that his offspring, his literal seed, his descendants, would become many nations. And Paul attests 
in Romans chapter 4 that the promise is certain to all the offspring, meaning the literal descendants of Abraham through Jacob Israel, and that they would have those promises, and that's what Paul is describing as the faith, and Paul is professing that he is taking the gospel of Christ to those same people. So what do you believe about Jesus? Because in Luke chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 15, it says that Christ came to fulfill those same promises which were made to the fathers. And when you read the promises to the fathers, Paul is explaining them properly and elucidating their fulfillment in the tribes of Europe, the early white tribes of Europe, whether they be Greeks or Romans or, or Galatians, Galatahi, who are the descendants of the Assyrian captivity, where the Dorian Greeks and the Macedonian Greeks and, and the Romans were all descendants of earlier migrations of the children of Israel into Europe. So that's what the faith is. It's defined by Paul in Romans chapter 4, and that agrees with everything that Christ said in, in the gospel and in the revelation. As we shall see in the in so the it really is Christ. quite recent, then, isn't it? If it's only been uh, hundred eighty years or so, or maybe longer, that we've uh, we, this was when we first got hard evidence that we could really prove that we were the Israelites, right? By digging up those rocks, right? It it began. If I had to put a a marker on when this began, it was probably in the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, I believe, when Sir Henry Layard had discovered the libraries of the Assyrians in Nineveh and various other places in what is now Iraq. But that couldn't happen until the British, the, the British Empire came into that region. It couldn't happen until then. We didn't have access throughout the whole Muslim period. We were cut off from all of that land for 1,200 years. And it wasn't until the 1800s in the British Empire when we had the military ability to keep relative peace in those areas so that Western academics, archaeologists, could go in there and start digging in the ground. So the Library of Nineveh was excavated in 1851, I think it was, by Henry Layard. Austin Henry Layard. I'm used to seeing his name spelled Sir Henry Layard, so I guess he may have went by his middle name. So that that's basically the birth, that gave birth to British Israel. 1850. Yeah, and those Middle East countries had just become a joke by then, right? And And it was easy for Britain to dominate them. Well, well, absolutely. That the I, the British didn't conquer Iran, but they that they held Iran at bay. Persia, it was called at that time. That they held it at bay, and they had actually invaded it. I believe on more than one occasion, and militarily held it in check, contained it, and kept it friendly to their 
their own objectives, they did that by sending troops from India, which they had already controlled. So that they, they had Persia bottled up, I believe. They had it surrounded with countries that they did control, but I don't think they ever actually controlled Persia. I don't think they actually ever actually had it as a subject nation. I could be wrong, depending on the period of time you're talking about. I haven't studied the entire issue between Britain and Persia. Later on, the Shahs, I believe, were actually installed by the British, if I'm not mistaken, or by the Americans, one or the other. It, it's what happened in, in, um, with the Ottomans and Britain in 1917 is a different story, and I'm not fully familiar with their control of Persia from that period forward. So I'm, I'm a little sketchy on that. But early on in the 1800s, I don't think the Brits controlled Persia at all. I, I believe Persia managed to stay independent. There were wars with the Persians that were not, I don't believe there was, those wars were decisive, that the British had actually launched from India, which at that time neighbored Persia, right? Okay, that's a digression. One that I'm not so good at, but that's okay. <laughs> the blindness of Israel. This is totally distinct from the blindness of the people, prophesied Isaiah chapter 6, of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. First, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, blindness is listed among the consequences of disobedience, where we read in verse 28, Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropes in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. So this is a national disobedience affecting all of the people and not merely a personal blindness. These rewards for obedience and consequences of disobedience, which are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I believe again in Leviticus chapter 26 or something like that, the, these are national consequences national punishment when you read the works of the prophets later on as the children of Israel are suffering this punishment in the consequences of disobedience when they begin to suffer it when they're being taken into captivity I believe it says in Ezekiel that the righteous are punished along with the just for the sins of the nation the righteous are punished along with the wicked for the sins of the nation so Good people also always suffer because of a, a, a wicked nation, wicked rulers. It's just a fact of, of, of life and, and history. Ezekiel chapter 21, and I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, meaning that all Israel or all the remnant of Judah would suffer on account of the wicked wickedness of the nation as a whole. In Isaiah chapter 29, there is a prophecy of blindness by which men would not even be able to understand scripture, where we read, 
For Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers he has covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. This, too, is a prophecy of our Bible, as that is the way in which men have received the vision of all, the records of the prophets and kings of ancient Israel. So men would have Bibles, but they would not be able to understand them. To most Christians today, these words are still sealed. However, later in that chapter, where we also see that this was a prophecy of Israel in general, there is a promise of future enlightenment, where at a particular time the blindness would be lifted. And in part we read, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in Yahweh, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Then skipping on to verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 29. Therefore thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, so we see the whole purpose of redemption right there, concerning the house of Jacob. So we see that the promises were only sent down through Jacob, as it also says, were only handed down through Jacob, as we also read in the book of Genesis and all of the rest of Scripture. Jacob shall not now be ashamed in that day when the book is open, when the blind begin to see. Neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands, so we understand that the objects of, of God's affection, the subjects of the scripture, still are, are still in that day the children of Jacob. In the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So that's a clear prophecy of the fact that people won't understand the scriptures. But in that day, at some point far off in Isaiah's future, they would understand them. They would be made to understand them. Another prophecy of Israel in the wilderness is found in Isaiah chapter 35, where there is also a promise related to the day of the vengeance of Yahweh God, and we read, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice, and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of Yahweh and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, 
Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even a God with even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. But as we read further, we see that this is also a prophecy of Christ. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert, that feeding of the woman in the wilderness. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And this also parallels those prophecies which we had discussed over the last few proofs, which stated that Israel would be nourished, as it is in Revelation chapter 12, or as it is in Isaiah chapter 43, that Israel would be watered in the wilderness. So we see in Isaiah chapter 35 that it is the children of Israel who are the blind. And in Isaiah chapter 42, we see more explicit references. Although we shall not read the entire chapter, it begins with the prophecy of Christ in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations, or Gentiles, as it is in the King James Version. We prefer the honest translation of nations. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. The isles, the isles and coastlands of the earth. The word has both meanings. Thus saith Yahweh God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out. He that spread forth the earth, and that which comes out of it. He that gives breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations. Now we shall pause here, and turn to Luke chapter 4 where Yahshua himself is recorded as explaining that the purpose of his calling, he's explaining this in, in a synagogue in Nazareth, he is explaining the purpose of his calling. And we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, most of those words are from the portion of Isaiah, which we know as chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. But the line which says, to set at liberty them that are bruised, is from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. 
And it is certain that Christ did not lose his place from which he was reading. So the insertion must be intentional. Furthermore, he stopped short of finishing Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, which says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and that's where he stopped, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And apparently that is because it was not yet his time to execute vengeance, which awaits his return, which is explained in the Revelation. So continuing with Isaiah chapter so 42. So execute part two when he returns, right? Yes, absolutely. He came for part one in his earthly ministry where he was crucified and resurrected. But he didn't come for part two at that time. Even though the, the apostles themselves had, had anticipated that. In Acts chapter 1, will you at this time deliver the kingdom to Israel? And he told them, it's not for you to know that. But he gave his revelation to John perhaps 30 years after that. No, I'm sorry. Over 50 years after that, after the ascension, he gave the revelation to John. Almost 60, or perhaps about 60, when John was in exile in Patmos, as an old, very old man, where at this time he's a very young man. So, I don't know if you have anything else before I proceed. I, I just wanted to ask, Bill, that word synagogue, I know you've um, you know, explained that it's a Greek compound word. Yes. Did, did non-Israelites use that as well? I, I know, I was just wondering, I wanted to ask you anyways, but I'm sure listeners would be interested in that. What, was it used across Greece as well, or was it only in Judea that they tended to use that word? It means like the meeting place or something, doesn't it? The congregation? I've never seen it in any other literature. I do not know if it's even in the Liddell and Scott lexicon because it's an obscure word. It, it's obscure. It's peculiar, I should say, to the biblical writings for the most part. Soon ago, soon ago is a common Greek word meaning to bring together, to gather together, to collect or convene. And that is the, that's found throughout Greek literature from Homer, and that's the verb form of the word that gives us synagogue. So, synagogius, one who brings together, a convener, one who unites, and that's found as early as the writings of Plato. So, that's 400 years before the New Testament. Synagoge is a bringing together or uniting. And it's found in Plato. So that's a surprise to me because I probably looked that up in the past, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> I've forgotten it. And synagogus is a bringing together or uniting, which is found in Plato. So yes, this is common or nearly common Greek words. Synagoge, so a bringing together use, or uniting. They just use that to try and deceive us, right? By well, well, to pretend they're Israelites, they call it synagogue. It, it's several words in, that the Jews use commonly that we as non-Jews perceive as Jewish words are actually Greek words. And, and another word is Sanhedrin. Now, they spell it a little differently in English than in Greek, 
but the Greek term is soon, which means with or together in, in Greek, as we just saw in the definitions of synagogue, synagogue, soon and hedrion. Hedrion is a bench or a seat in Greek. So soon hedrion would mean at the bench together, which kind of implies a formal meeting or a council. And it was in that way that the word was used, commonly in Greek. So soon edrion, soon hedrion is where we get this word Sanhedrin, the Jews had taken the Greek word Sunedrion and used it to describe their council in ancient Judea, which evolved into the word Sanhedrin in, in the New Testament. And the Jews commonly use that word Sanhedrin in that context of, of those times, but it's not a Hebrew word, it's a Greek word. So what these words tell us, synagogue and Sanhedrin, is that the apostles of Christ and the writers of our scriptures were a lot less Judaized and a lot more Hellenized than we might imagine. That these words are Greek words and they're not. I was not. just going to say that it shows Hellenization, that it was a Greek culture, well, that they spoke Greek, or at least it was very common amongst well, why would they have that word synagogue if they didn't speak Greek? Where would they get that from? Why wouldn't they use a a a, a Hebrew word for assembly? I, I mean, there are Hebrew words for congregation, right? Which is, we see that term, the congregation of Israel, throughout the scripture. That word is idah in Hebrew. It's Strong's number 5712. All the congregation, idah all the congregation of Israel, the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, that word is a little different. It's moed. It, it's actually a, a compound from Ida, I believe. Moed is congregation in the place, in, in the sense of an appointed place or a meeting right? So you have Ida and you have Moed. Why don't the Jews use those words to describe their synagogues? They took Greek words. Well, they took those Greek words as part of the pretense that they're the people of the New Testament, because they're the words that are used in the Greek scriptures. Sunedrion. So they call their council a Sanhedrin. Synagogue. So they call their meeting places to this day a synagogue. Why are they using a Greek term and not a Hebrew one? Why don't they use Moed? Let's go down to the Moed and, and have our um, Sabbath day baby slaughter, baby sacrifice or something. It, it's they don't. They use those Greek words because those words are would be familiar to Christians. I believe that is part of deception, yes. And that's a good observation. So continuing with Isaiah chapter 42, because we're seeing that the exact words used by the prophet in relation to the blindness of Israel were used by Christ 
to explain that it's him opening the eyes of the blind. Well, nobody else from any other race or nation were blind. Only the Israelites had suffered this blindness that Christ had come to, to cure, and which isn't totally cured yet, not until the Israelites learn who they are, or not until whites learn, white Europeans learn that they are actually Israel. So continuing with Isaiah chapter 42, where we also have a messianic prophecy explaining the purpose of the Christ. We read that he had come to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Yahweh. That is my name. This is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 7 and 8. These are the exact words Christ had used, citing Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, the new things I do declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Okay, so if the purpose of the Messiah was to open the eyes of the blind, to bring forth the prisoners from the prison house, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, and God says that he would, before these things would come to pass, these new things, that he would tell us of them. He's telling us of them here in Isaiah chapter 42, later on in Isaiah chapter 61, partially in Isaiah chapter 58, and they are the things that Christ came to do. So we were told what Christ was going to do, and when we read what Christ was going to do in Isaiah, which is what the scripture says where the scripture says it is, we see all of this relates only to those children of Israel who would become blind and be put in darkness and put into a an allegorical prison house in their captivity, in the time from when they were put out of the land and taken away by the Assyrians and Babylonians. In Isaiah, the blind are the children of Israel being taken into captivity, and they are also the prisoners in the allegorical prison. In the words of Christ in Luke, they are also the bruised, since in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, the prophet was also referring to the children of Israel. While in the King James Version of Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, the corresponding phrase says, and to let the oppressed go free. In the Septuagint Greek, the phrase in Greek, apostale tethrosmenus en aphesi, which is equal to the phrase in Luke 4.19, which says in the King James Version, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If you compare that Septuagint Greek to Luke's Greek in 4.19, you'll see a difference of only two letters in the ending of one verb, which basically would have the same meaning anyway, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Those that are bruised, in Isaiah 58.6, which is what Christ is quoting, are the same Israelites that were going to be blind and put in a prison house, meaning that they were taken into captivity, an allegorical prison house. So continuing with Isaiah chapter 42, a little further on, in verse 16, and I will bring the blind 
referring to the children of Israel, by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. In other words, they were facing darkness. They were facing crooked things. They had been walking a path of darkness. They had been walking a crooked path for which they were punished, and that those things would all be made light and made straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. So we see that the subject is still the children of Israel. Further on, we read in verse 18, Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf, as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you observe not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. And all these things have to do only with the children of Israel. And this is the purpose of the ministry of Christ. So next we see more explicitly that it is the children of Israel in the allegorical prison houses in verse 22 of that chapter, Isaiah chapter 42. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are, all of them, snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. So where we see that prison house, or that Christ came to free these prisoners, it can only relate to this people, the children of Israel. Because this is what Yahweh said he would do ahead of time. So this is what he must have been doing in the ministry of Christ. They are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and no one delivers. For a spoil, and no one says restore. Well, that's the work of Christ. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh, against whom we have sinned? For he would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Later. In Isaiah chapter 44, we learn again that the, <coughs> excuse me, that the children of Israel are collectively Yahweh's servant, his servant race, where it says, yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not. Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. First, before we continue, Isaiah chapter 43 opens, where Yahweh continues addressing the children of Israel. And we read, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he deformed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. Then, after promises of preservation in their migrations, we see a promise of reconciliation. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west, and I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, 
For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Speaking to the children of Israel. And now, once again, they are described as being blind. And still being blind, even if they are reconciled to Yahweh their God in Christ. Where we read, Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or, or let them hear and say it is truth. So there is no proper interpretation of the ministry of Christ and the fulfillment of these things which he fulfilled until we look back at Isaiah and see the former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. That's how they're justified. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, my servant, speaking to the children of Israel, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. When we properly interpret these things, we know that God is true. Before me was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. There they would also learn that Christ is Yahweh their God if they do not already understand him as he had spoken in John chapter 8 and said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he. So now we can so, go so back. So is that talking about gathering all his people uh, at the end of time and um, waking them up in the end? That will be scattered all across the world, and finally he'll wake us up when uh, on the appointed time, right? Yes, absolutely. That's everything that this is prophesying, and and Christ had come to open the eyes of the blind, but not yet have they listened. Christ came, yeah. and the said, Christians "I've come." Only have a partial understanding, right? They they only have a partial understanding is correct. Christ came and said, I have come but unto, meaning I have only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for sheep that were already lost. He's not, yet, you know, that's interpreted today by these denominational churches, but like mainstream existentialist, existentialist hippies would understand it, where, where you're lost if, if you haven't found Jesus. Well, if you're not one of those lost sheep in the first place, then finding Jesus isn't going to do any good. You better hope that Jesus finds you. He seeks out the sheep. You can't choose to be a lost sheep. You can't make a personal choice to be a lost sheep. You were one of those people who were lost, or you're not. And if you're not, then this scripture doesn't even pertain to you. If you're not one of the descendants of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then none of this pertains to you. All, the, yeah, all of these promises were exclusively to those people. You can't make yourself one of those people. I'm sorry. I said they, they will get to know him when, on part two when he returns, but for a different reason. Right, absolutely. But only they will know him. That's the promise. Okay. I'm sort of lost. That that 
foray into Isaiah chapter 43 was actually a digression that I didn't explain well enough at the beginning of that paragraph in my notes, but to go back and discuss those prophecies in Isaiah chapter 42, the miracles which Christ had performed in the healing of the blind and the lame were only allegories. They themselves were allegories or types for the children of Israel who were scattered abroad who were allegorically blind and allegor allegorically lame in that same manner as it is described throughout Isaiah, and more specifically in, in that chapter 42, which we had discussed a little earlier here. It is the children of Israel who were described in Isaiah as sitting in darkness, and Christ had come to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, as it is described at the end of Luke chapter 1. So we read of the children of Israel in Micah chapter 7. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness... Yahweh shall be a light unto me. That's Micah chapter 7, verse 8. If Christ came to fulfill the prophets, which is what he himself had said, then he was fulfilling all of these things as they are described in the prophets. And these things are only applicable to the children of Israel. So the apostles of Christ brought the gospel to the white nations of Europe. That's not a mistake. That, that's not a coincidence. The statement in Luke that Christ had come to give light to them that sit in darkness leads, our, leads us to our next proof, which is interpreting the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Yeah, and, and um, a lot of people don't realize that all those, um, you know, where he's healing the blind and all that, there is a bit more to that, that he's basically showing you that um, the gospel of Christ opens our eyes, right, to the truth. Well, right. The gospel of Christ opens our eyes to the truth. It, it tells us why it's so important for the children of Israel to keep that law, which they, those commandments which they were given, all the way back in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It certainly exhibits to us why it's important to keep the law, where the children of Israel had failed miserably, and for that reason, they were blinded and made to wander and disconnected from, from the promises of their inheritance, which they regain in Christ, because the offer of redemption in Christ is only for them. So if they will keep his commandments, they will regain that adoption, that position as the sons and daughters of God. Yeah. And um, as for the, the gospel of the kingdom, it is um, essentially when we keep his laws and as Israelites separate from the other races, that's when we build his kingdom, essentially, right, that we're going to get to. Right. That That is when we do it. But we can't do it unless we're keeping his laws. And, and we have to keep his laws collectively. Then the kingdom would, be mani would become manifest. 
and and that that's probably something that I did not explain here when I wrote these notes yesterday. I'm going to add here that the denominational churches translate where Christ had said that the kingdom of God is within you. He's speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to a group of people, and some of them are Edomites, and some of them are Israelites. It's a mixed race in Judea at the time, as we had explained in the past here on many occasions. This is Luke 17, chapter 21, and he's saying, and this is admitted in some of the lexicons, I believe in Joseph Thayer, it's certainly admitted. He's saying that the kingdom of God is among you, not within you. The kingdom of God isn't something that's in your heart or, or in in your mind. It's among you. He's speaking to a large group of people. The kingdom of God consists of the children of Israel, period. And we will see that here, I pray, and as we correlate some of these statements concerning the kingdom with the Old Testament. Three times in Matthew and twice in Mark, we see references to Christ having preached the gospel of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, we read, Now after that John, meaning John the Baptist, was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God would become manifest in the world if the children of Israel repented and accepted the gospel. Then they would keep his commandments. Then at the end of his ministry, there is Matthew chapter 24, where he is recorded as having said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So we must admit that the gospel of Christ is the gospel of the kingdom. If Christ came to declare the kingdom of God, we should be able to find that kingdom in the Old Testament, as he had also come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Since Christ himself had said in Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For that same reason, Paul of Tarsus had written in Romans chapter 15, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the nations, not Gentiles, nations might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this cause will I confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. As we have explained here already, in Romans chapter 4, Paul had defined those nations as being the nations descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel. Luke uses different language, where he often used the phrase kingdom of God. For example, in chapter 4, where we read, speaking of Christ, and he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. 
So the purpose of Christ was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The phrase appears on 30 other occasions in Luke and seven times in Acts. Paul of Tarsus, speaking to the leaders of the Christians of Ephesus for the very last time, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, said to them in part, And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Then in Acts chapter 28, Luke explained that after Paul had arrived at Rome, he dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That same phrase, kingdom of God, is mentioned over a dozen times in Paul's epistles. Examining the law... The CEI message... Would that absolutely. be like a simple way of explaining it? Well, well, absolutely is the Christian identity, is Christian identity the gospel of the kingdom, as we shall explain here. And, and that's what we're about to endeavor in brief. We could have elaborated a lot more than what I have in front of me, the two and a half pages I have in front of me. Three times, I'm, I'm sorry, now... I'm losing my place. Examining the law and the prophets, we find that the kingdom of God is actually defined in scripture in Exodus chapter 19, where we read, Now therefore, Yahweh God speaking to the children of Israel, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. The children of Israel themselves are considered the kingdom of God. And David and Solomon had both attested that they were sitting upon the throne of God throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Then, in Isaiah chapter 9, we read in a messianic prophecy, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this and Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob and it has lighted Upon Israel. So if the throne of David was established over the children of Israel alone, how can we think differently of the throne of Christ, who, as an explicit subject of prophecy, was to inherit 
inherit the throne of David. The nature of the throne does not change. The nature of the throne was never prophesied to change. It's the same throne. Daniel was speaking of the children of Israel, where he wrote in references to the ancient world empires in Daniel chapter 2, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That kingdom is mentioned again in chapter 7, in a similar vision, where he said in part, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then a little further on, speaking of what is apparently the return of Christ, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So the kingdom of God in the gospel cannot possibly be different, be a different kingdom than that which was prophesied by Daniel, and that kingdom belongs to the children of Israel, as only they would have been considered the saints of the Most High when Daniel had written those words. How could it be any different kingdom than the kingdom described by Daniel, the same kingdom that was ruled over by David? And that is the kingdom of prophecy. And that is the kingdom prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 in relation to Jesus Christ, to Yahshua Christ. So what is the kingdom of God? So we see again God? and again, it's only the children of Israel, and it's all, all about the children of Israel. It's never um, a church or an institution or a country. It's just all about us, right? Absolutely. So in Micah chapter 4, we read, and, and where Christ told the Judeans that the kingdom of God had been taken from you and given to a nation that is worthy of its fruits or, or whatever, I'm paraphrasing, this is what he was referencing, but our look, kingdom taken, our mainstream Bibles, this is Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So we see that Christ was talking to the Judeans, who in pretense were in control of what was seen as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the God of Scripture. And in reality, they were only usurpers who had usurped control. As Christ had said in another place that the kingdom of heaven is preached and the violent ones force their way in. And I'm paraphrasing that also, and I'm not going to go looking for that passage because it, it'll bring me to other digressions, but that's fine. That, that's 
they were the violent ones who were trying to force their way into the kingdom of God when Christ had told them that they were not his sheep in John chapter 10 and described them as wolves who had come in from a way into the sheepfold from a way other than the door of the sheep and that he came in through the door of the sheep. So he came from God to the sheep, and they came from another way because, as he explained in that same place in John chapter 10, they are thieves and liars. Micah chapter 4, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, meaning that the kingdom hasn't changed. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And it's going to be the same dominion as that ancient kingdom that was ruled over in Jerusalem. A daughter in scripture is a colony or a city or country consisting of people from the former city or country. Therefore, Jerusalem, having been a capital city of ancient Israel, the future kingdom described in that passage of Micah would also consist of Israelites ruled over by a capital of the same people of Israel. So we cannot, or, or kings of Israel, so we cannot justly suppose that Christ was speaking of some flock other than Israel, where in Luke chapter 12 he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Rather, he was speaking of the same flock referenced by Micah as he had come to fulfill the words of that prophet as well as the others. So, so Bill, um, since the CI message would eventually be spread, that's what he said, right? The gospel of the kingdom, only then will he return we have a guarantee that the CI message will eventually reach everyone, right? Because that's what he's saying before he returns. Is it going to be before his return? That's another question. Is it going to be announced to the world before his return as a witness? Yes, that is what we are doing. We are yeah, preaching so everyone will the at least hear King. it, whether they accept it or choose to accept it. That's another story, right? Absolutely. But in the end, they all will know that it's true. They'll have no choice but to know at his return. As John explained in the opening chapter of his gospel, Yahshua Christ is the light come into the world. The need for that light is also described in the words of the prophets. For example, in Isaiah chapter 42, which we just read, where it is still speaking of the children of Israel and Yahweh promises in verse 16. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do to them and not forsake them. So for that same reason, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, 
but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And, and I should take some time to explain some of that. In the first verse of that passage, where it says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's language right from that passage that we had cited about the children of Israel being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter has taken that right from Exodus chapter 19, and it only refers to the ancient children of Israel and their ongoing descendants. Then, where it says that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that is in fulfillment of the language in Isaiah chapter 42, that Peter is showing us that that was fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. In the second verse of that passage from Peter, from verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, the reference to not a people is a direct reference to the word of Yahweh found in Hosea chapter 1 concerning the ancient children of Israel. And Peter is teaching its fulfillment. Speaking in reference to the children of Israel, Yahweh made an example of a son which was born to the prophet Hosea, where we read, Then said God, Call his name Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami means not my people in Hebrew. Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. Now that goes back to the promises to Abraham. And it shall come to pass, and this is the important part, that in the place where it was said unto them, meaning the children of Israel, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, meaning the children of Israel, you are the sons of the living God. Therefore, the only people who could be the sons of the living God are those same people who had been renounced, which are the children of Israel sent into Assyrian captivity. Peter was speaking to their descendants as well as to other ancient Israelites whose ancestors had migrated to Europe at even earlier times. He's not speaking to anyone but descendants of the ancient children of Israel. The word generation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is, a, is the word genos in Greek, which is a race. Only the children of Israel were ever chosen in the words of the law or the prophets. We have already read from Isaiah chapter 44, where it says, Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. Now, that word Jesurun is an appellation for the children of Israel, which means upright one. 
Writing the same audience of Christians scattered across the provinces of western Anatolia a short time later, Peter mentioned their having been chosen once again where he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom, that same kingdom described by Daniel, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nobody else has a role in this. That choosing, that calling, that election, all happened to the children of Israel back in the Old Testament, and nobody is ever going to change that. And the apostles don't deny it, and the apostles don't try to change it. The apostles only uphold it using the same language that was used by the prophets, by Isaiah and by Daniel. That kingdom forever and ever is that kingdom forever and ever in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. Addressing the children of Israel in captivity, we read in Isaiah chapter 51, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh. Look unto the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hold of the pit whence you are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. This hasn't changed. Paul upholds this in Romans chapter 4. Paul verifies this in Romans chapter 4. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion, which is a term used to describe the children of Israel, the mountain of his people. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving, once the children of Israel realize what happened, when their eyes are opened, and the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. This is the light of Christ. There is no other light promised in Scripture. If Yahweh called Abraham alone and increased him, which is a reference to the children of Israel who inherited the promises through Jacob, then Christ came only for those same people as they alone are called. There's no changing this in the New Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament that changes this except for a few passages which condemns the Jews who aren't his people, as he told them, you are not my sheep, and the apostles announced that they have taken the gospel to the nations, not to Gentiles, to the nations, to the nations who descended from that same Abraham. I'm sorry, I know you and want to verses say something. Like these, th these are the verses the churches hate to read, right? Because if people actually study this, they might start to get it and put the pieces together, right? It's so easy to put together once you understand the history, the little bit of background history that's necessary for instance, where Flavius Josephus had said that the people of the northern tribes were beyond Euphrates in his time and were an innumerable multitude. And when we look at the 
descriptions of the world in Diodorus Siculus, his Library of History, or in Strabo of Cappadocia in his Geography, which was one of the most important works of scholarship, two of the most important works of scholarship throughout the entire Middle Ages when Christians ran the schools. And we look beyond the Euphrates, we see the Goths, the Saxons, all the tribes of the Scythians that later became known as the Germanic people. That's who we see from the vantage point of Strabo and Diodorus, who both wrote only a short time before Josephus had written those words. And there were no innumerable multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates at that time. None. There were no people called Jews beyond the Euphrates at that time, except for a few Judeans who may have been sojourning along the Roman trade routes. Among the many places in Isaiah where the children of Israel are described as having been called is Isaiah chapter 48, where we read, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. And I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. We see that exact language reiterated by Yahshua Christ in the gospel and in the revelation. Then a little further on in Isaiah 48, I, even I, have spoken. Yeah, I have called him, meaning Israel. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous, meaning Israel. So where Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, speaking of that same God who spoke in Isaiah, that whom he did foreknow, which could only be Israel, he also did predestinate, which could only be Israel, and whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And Paul was writing of the same children of Israel. We cited Peter where he referred to his Christian readers as a holy nation, just as the children of Israel were a holy nation in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read in the promise of the new covenant, which is in Christ, is fulfilled in Christ, and it says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, that's the family, and the house of Judah. Paul of Tarsus cites this in Hebrews chapter 8. He doesn't change a word of it. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their hearts, in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, period. And they shall be my people. So if Christ is anyone's God except for them, then Christ has destroyed the law and the prophets. He hasn't fulfilled them. But he came to fulfill them and specifically, explicitly said that he would not destroy them. In other words, he would not nullify any of them, the law or the prophets. And here we have it. Then a little further on, in that same chapter of Jeremiah, just two verses further on, three verses further on, we read, Thus saith Yahweh, 
which gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, since we still have a sun, moon, and stars, the children of Israel are still a nation and not a church or some mere collection of believers. While the children of Israel were prophesied to become many nations, they are still collectively a nation as the nations of Europe, where they migrated, are all related. That leads us to our next proof, that Israel would always be 12 tribes and not some church or collection of believers. So the gospel of the kingdom is for one nation only. And the apostles brought that gospel to Europe. That wasn't a mistake. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, so we still are uh, one nation um, of the Israel and 12 tribes, even though we make our own borders and, and all that. We are always going to be 12 tribes of Israel, right? Absolutely. There's no doubt. And there are 12 tribes right to the end. The city which descends from heaven, as it's explained in the very last chapter of the Revelation, is founded upon those same 12 tribes. And... Its gates have the names of those same 12 tribes on its 12 gates. And, and if you look at the scheme, that is the same scheme where we see the tabernacle in the wilderness and the 12 tribes of Israel arranged around the tabernacle. It's going to be no different in the end, where the city of God, which descends from heaven, is really an allegory for the people themselves, and they're going to be gathered around the throne of their God. And if you're not one of those 12 tribes, you're not getting into that city. Just like yeah. in the tabernacle in the wilderness, if you weren't from one of those 12 tribes, you had no right to approach the door to that tabernacle. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see which um, gate we all walk through, right? I'm sure there'll be a lot of surprises. Well, yeah, there's going to be a lot more surprises than we think, I'm sure. But that's the word of God. And if we really accept the word of Christ in the New Testament, we must accept it in that context. We have no choice but to accept it in the context of the word of God, which came through the prophets in the Old Testament, because first, Christ had said that he came to fulfill those things, not to destroy them, and second, because he is that word made flesh. He's not going to break his own word. He'd have to break himself. It's yeah. insolent of us to think that Christ was going to change anything written in the prophets when he is that word made flesh. And so, um, next week we'll show that um, that there's uh, no such thing as a, a church of believers or the church of Israel. It's, it's just a race, a people. So so you'd have to look for a people who are all one race, and that would be the 12 tribes, right, with other evidence. But you'd find them. You, you shouldn't look for a church or believers because the prophets always spoke of a race of people, right, the Israelites. Well, 
Absolutely. That word church it is a is an artificial word in English. It's not even a real word. It 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 was made up and, and I'll explain how. I, I I'm I'll explain how. I'm sorry. The word curious in Greek is Lord. Curious. K-U-R-I-O-S, it would be spelled in English letters. So the Greek has genitive forms and, and there are, are several of them. One would be curiou, would be of the Lord, but curiacus is a genitive form which explains something that belongs to the Lord. And curiacus is, if I had to spell it in English, I would spell it K-U-R-I-A-K-O-S, curiacus, is the word that was shortened in German to Kirke, K-I-R-K-E, and it's that word which came into English and eventually evolved into church, C-H-U-R-C-H. So the word church in English came from that Greek word, curiacus, and it's contracted and washed and rinsed through German, more or less, right? So through Germanic, because of course the Anglo-Saxons were Germanic tribes. So curiacus, church is a made-up word from curiacus, which means of the Lord. But that word curiacus does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. Wherever you see that word church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia in Greek. It's the same word that words like ecclesiastical and ecclesiastes come from in the Latin church, right? Because ecclesiastical it is a, a word that the Roman church had borrowed from Greek and used in Latin to describe some of their forms and, and rituals and things like that. So ecclesiastical is really a Greek word from ecclesia, which means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. Now, the and, and that definition comes from its secular use in Greek politics and especially the politics of the Athenians, where the ecclesia were the citizens of Athens who were entitled, because they were male, because they were property holders, to participate in the political process at Athens, in their democracy. You had to be a male property holder. So you had to be entitled to participate in the ecclesia, to be called, because ecclesia comes from two Greek words. It's a compound word itself, the word ek, which is from, and the, the verb kaleo, which means to call. And ecclesis is a calling. So ecclesia means from calling. So the ecclesia in the New Testament means the children of Israel, because they were the called. There were no other called. 
It doesn't mean a church. It means the called. That's what it means. And in the context of the New Testament, that could only be referring to those who were called in the Old Testament. That's what that word means. So that's another digression. But now perhaps I'll have to repeat it next week anyway. But that's okay. We can do that. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Next, next week we'll talk about the Ecclesia and the 12 tribes. Praise Yahweh and good night.